Hello everybody! Uh, sorry that it's been a little bit since I did some content. I was actually in the middle of working on the video you're about to watch uh, when a dear friend of mine of many years had passed away and I had to deal with the aftermath of that. So uh, today we're going to talk about uh, Vladimir Putin recently coming out and discussing the issues of the social justice movement and how ironically, you know, he's basically bringing up that there's a lot of correlations between what's going on in the United States and things that had happened in Soviet Russia. Now, I find this a little ironic because, you know, if you've followed any of the stuff I've done about Yuri Bezmenov, who we'll also be talking about in this episode, um, it seems like a lot of this stuff may have actually originated in Soviet Russia and found its way over here. So, anyway, without further ado, first let's begin with me showing you a translated talk uh, or speech that Vladimir Putin gave recently. We see with bemusement the processes unfolding in countries that have grown accustomed to viewing themselves as the flagships of progress. Of course, it's none of our business what is happening. The social and cultural shocks that are happening in some countries, in the Western countries, some believe that aggressive blotting out of whole pages of your own history, the affirmative action in the interest of minorities and the requirement to renounce the traditional interpretation of such basic values as mother, father, family and the distinction between sexes are a milestone towards a renewal of society. It's their right. They can do that if they want to. We're not trying to meddle into that, but we have a different point of view. The proponents of the so-called social progress believe that they are bringing a new conscience a new consciousness to humanity, something that is more correct. But we're not the ones to judge. Let them do that if they want to. But there is one thing I would like to say. The recipes they come up with are nothing new. Paradoxical, as it may seem, but this is something we saw in Russia. It happened in our country before. After the 1917 revolution, the Bolsheviks followed the dogmas of Marx and Engels, and they also declared that they were going to change the traditional lifestyle, the political, the economic lifestyle, as well as the very notion of morality, the basic principles for a healthy society. They were trying to destroy age and century-long values, revisiting the relationship between people. They were encouraging, informing on one's own beloved and families. It was hailed as the march of progress, and it was very popular across the world, and it was supported by many, as we see it is happening right now. Incidentally, the Bolsheviks were absolutely intolerant of other opinions, differing from their own. And I think this should remind you of something that is happening. And we see what is happening in the Western countries. It is with puzzlement that we see the practices Russia used to have and that we left behind in distant path. The fight for equality and against discrimination turns into an aggressive dogmatism 
uh, on the brink of absurdity when great authors of the past, such as Shakespeare, are no longer taught in schools and universities because they are announced as backward classics that did not understand the importance of gender or race in Hollywood. There are leaflets reminding what you should do in the cinema, in the films, how many personalities and actors you've got, well, what kind of color, what sex, and sometimes it's even, even tighter and stricter than what the Department of Propaganda of the Soviet Communist Party Central Committee did. And the fight against racism, which is a lofty goal, turns into new culture, uh, council culture, and into reverse discrimination, racism on the obverse. And it brings people apart, whereas the true fighters for civic rights, they were trying to eliminate those differences. I asked my colleagues to fight this quote from Martin Luther King, and he said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That is a true value. But I'm afraid this is not what we see in reality right now. Incidentally, in Russia, most of our countries simply do not care what skin color you have. He or she, that's not that important, because each and every one of us is a human person, human being. That's the most important thing. We see a phantasmagoria brought about by this discussion in the Western countries about the rights of men and women. You know, uh, the Bolsheviks were speaking about nationalizing not just the property, but also women. The proponents of new approaches go so far as they want to eliminate the whole notions of men and women. And those who dare say that men and women exist, and this is a biological fact, they are all but banished. Parent number one, parent number two, or the parent that has given birth, or instead of breast milk, you say human milk. And you say all of that so that people who are not sure of their sex or gender are not unhappy. And I would like to say that this is not something new. In the 20s, in the 1920s, the Soviet Kulturträger came up with the so-called Newspeak, and they thought that thereby they were building a new consciousness and coming up with new values. And they went so far that we feel the consequences up until now. There are some monstrous things when, from a very young age, you teach to children that a boy can easily become a girl, and you impose on them this selection, this choice. You push the parents aside and make the child take these decisions that can destroy their lives. And if we call the spade a spade, this is uh, nigh to uh, a crime against humanity, and all of that under the banner of progress. Well, some people just want to do that. This is exactly what the KGB and Marxist-Leninist propaganda wants from Americans, to distract their uh, opinion, uh, attention, and 
mental energy from real issues of the United States into a non-issues, into a non-world, non-existent uh, harmony. Obviously, it's more beneficial for the Soviet aggressors to have a bunch of duped Americans than Americans who are self-conscious, healthy, uh, physically fit, and alert to, to the reality. I guess it is kind of interesting how distracted the people of the United States have been with all of this woke stuff and how it's distracting us from real world issues like what China is doing, um, what you know is going on in the world at large. Instead, we're focused on how we're making the world a better place by going into people's Twitter feeds from 10 years ago and canceling them. So now we're going to talk a little bit more about Yuri Bezmenov's uh, descriptions of ideological subversion and i want you to consider for a bit just how much in common what he's talking about has with what's going on right now well you spoke several times before about ideological subversion that is a phrase that uh, i'm afraid some americans don't fully understand when uh, the soviets use the phrase ideological subversion what do they mean by it ideological subversion is is the process which is legitimate, overt, and open. You, you can see it with your own eyes. All, all you have to do, all American mass media has to do, is to unplug their bananas from their ears, open up their eyes, and they can see it. There is no mystery. There is nothing to do with espionage. I know that espionage intelligence gathering looks more romantic. It sells more deodorants through the advertising, probably. That's why your Hollywood producers are so crazy about James Bond type of, of thrillers. But in reality, the main emphasis of the KGB is not in the area of it intelligence at all. According to my uh, opinion and opinion of many defectors of my caliber, only about 15% of time, money, and manpower is spent on espionage as such. The other 85% is a slow process which we call either ideological subversion or active measures, activne meropriatia in the language of, of the KGB, or psychological warfare. What it basically means is to change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite of the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions in the interests of defending themselves, their families, their community, and their country. So this particular point of Yuri's is one of the things that really struck me, that really made me think, man, that, that's what's going on right now. And it's that inability to think that despite an abundance of information, and remember, he was given this talk a long time ago, so this is before the internet, people still can't come to rational decisions. They still can't come to rational conclusions about what's going on in their country. And who does that, you know, who does that benefit? Well, it certainly isn't us. It's a great brainwashing uh, process, which goes very slow, and it's divided in, in four basic stages. Uh, the first one being demoralization. It takes from 15 to 20 years to demoralize a nation. Why that many years? Because this is the minimum number of years which requires to uh, educate one generation of students in the country of, of, of your enemy, exposed to the ideology of the enemy. In other words, Marxism-Leninism ideology is being pumped into the soft heads of, of, of at least three generations of American students without being challenged or counterbalanced by the basic values 
of Americanism, American patriotism. So this was a video that was recently brought to my attention where somebody was giving a presentation to educators on critical race theory, and they finally said the quiet part out loud, which is the relationship between critical race theory and Marxism. Now I step into Marxism, which is a second critical framework for understanding race. This is one that a lot of people arguably aren't used to, because uh, uh, correctly speaking, uh, most people understand Marxism as offering analysis or critical analysis of class. But Marxist theories of racism um, do offer fundamental challenges to race thinking and race thought, where they argue that race in quotation marks here is unavoidably caught in a reification of what is at heart an ideological or made up concept. In short, within a Marxist framework, a critical study of race is not a study of race, in fact, at all, but an analysis of class antagonism found within capitalism, which gives rise to the reality of racial division, but which itself is not caused by racial structures per se. This is just, this is to suggest that a Marxist inspired version of race scholarship is not a racial analysis of race, but a class analysis of racialization. And of course, we could discuss the communist origins of the Black Lives Matter movement. Here's Black Lives Matter founder Patrice Cullors talking about how they are trained Marxists. I think of a lot of things. The first thing I think is that we actually do have an ideological frame. Um, myself and Alicia in particular are trained organizers. Um, we uh, are trained Marxists. Um, we are uh, super uh, versed um, on sort of ideological theories. Kind of makes you wonder where someone goes to become a quote-unquote trained Marxist, huh? And when that uh, quote got circulated, she ended up trying to do some damage control later. We can take a look at that here. So y'all asked, and I am ready to answer. Am I a Marxist? Let's get into it. I do believe in Marxism. It's a philosophy that I learned really early on in my organizing career. We were taught to learn about the systems that were criticizing capitalism. Now, it's important to note, particularly for those of you in Tifa who think that you're anarcho-communists, what type of Marxism are we talking about? Well, here's another clip of her glowingly reviewing a book, comparing it to the Red Book of Chairman Mao, the book that was at the cornerstone, essentially, of the Cultural Revolution that led to the slaughter of lots of people, basically anybody who was Chairman Mao's political opponent. And they used college-aged you know, kids in China to fuel this revolution. Solutions. I was at the our publications table today and I was speaking to this uh, young person from Arizona who's trying to fight uh, SB 1070 and I was he, he he grabbed a book and he said it's like Mao's red book and I was like man that's what I was thinking and it was just really cool to hear him make that connection I was like how about you buy like 10 to 15 of these books and you all have like a youth like organizing group where you talk about it and you really try to engage this and we can just kind of, we need to build off of this. And so that leads me to um, a point that I, I actually wanted to kind of focus on today, which is, um, I think I have a, a really important role in speaking to youth. I, I have, maybe it's because I came in the movement at 17 and a half, so I have like just a knack for knowing how to organize young people into this organization and kind of teach them this 
this politic and then hear them now organize other people. So not only is that her glowingly reviewing somebody's book and comparing it to an authoritarian communist book, then she goes on to say how great she is at talking to young people and basically brainwashing them into this ideology, exactly as Yuri was talking about. So if you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, you don't have to be a communist to be involved in Black Lives Matter. Uh, you don't have to oppose capitalism necessarily to believe that Black Lives Matter. Well, the founders would disagree with you. Here's Garza, another one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, speaking at the Left Forum. It's not possible for a world to emerge where Black Lives Matter if it's under capitalism. This communist connection used to be just well known in the left when I was back in Occupy uh, to be connected directly to the core of Antifa. But in case anybody is still doubting that that's what's going on, there's a montage that somebody put together of various clips of, again, them saying the, you know, the quiet part out loud. Revolution will happen when people start organizing outside the system. It's up to us to carve out a different future. That's why we say revolution, nothing less. The end goal is the abolishment of capitalism. Revolution, nothing less. Can you imagine a world without America? Hell yeah! Can you imagine a world without America? Hell yeah! The world is a nightmare for the vast majority of humanity. There is no way out of this mess except socialist revolution. Well, socialism is the road to communism. It happens in the streets, it does not happen in the Senate. We need people that are actually organizing in the streets, creating crisis for the decision makers. They brought up a whole new society, the new socialist republic in North America. Communism is a higher stage. It's after the entire world has become socialist. In the lead up to the revolution and shortly after, there would be resistance. These people should be referred to as neo-Nazis, as fascists, as the legitimate scum they are. If it's bloody, it will be the fault of the ruling class. Let's make the guillotine right again. Take the same action Lincoln took and put them down. So they can be wiped from this country. The masses will fall. They'll fall in line. We need to start getting serious about organizing. You know, and building power and building the infrastructure we need to shut down. And that, you see, could pull apart this country, okay? And, you know, quite frankly, this country needs to be pulled apart. Only revolution! Stop thinking like Americans! Let me hear you say that! Stop thinking like Americans! And start thinking about humanity! This is what we are fighting for, y'all! This is what we are fighting for! This is a constitution! Can you reach people that are that far gone? I would say it's possible, but according to Yuri, the outlook is not good. Uh, exposure to true information does not matter anymore. A person who was demoralized is unable to assess true information. The facts tell nothing to him. Uh, even if I shower him with information, with, with authentic proof, with documents, with pictures, even if I take him by force to the Soviet Union and show him concentration camp, he will refuse to believe it 
until he, he is going to receive a kick in, the, in his fat bottom. When a military boot crashes his then he will understand, but not before that. That's the tragic of the situation of demoralization. So Yuri was actually sent to work in India, where he was supposed to help them essentially demoralize that country. And he talks a bit about what the fate of these useful idiots, as Stalin called them, is if in the event that they, the communist regimes that are using these destabilization processes actually succeed. And it doesn't actually work out for the domestic terrorist types that have been duped into going along with authoritarian communism. And yet these people who've been programmed and, as you say, in place and yes. who are favorable to an opening with the Soviet concept, mm -hmm. these are the very people who would be marked for extermination in this country? Most of them, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, simply because the psychological shock when, when they will see in future what the, what the beautiful society of equality and social justice means in practice, obviously they will revolt. They, 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 will, uh, they, they will be very unhappy, frustrated people. And the Marxist-Leninist regime does not tolerate these people. Uh, they, obviously, they will join the links of dissenters, mm -hmm. dissidents. Yes. Uh, unlike in present United States, there will be no place for dissent in, in future Marxist-Leninist America. Uh, here you can, you can get uh, popular like uh, Daniel Ellsberg and filthy rich like Jane Fonda for being dissident, for criticizing your Pentagon. In future, these people will be simply squashed like cockroaches. Nobody is going to pay them nothing for their beautiful, noble ideas of equality. This they don't understand, and uh, it will be greatest shock for them, of course. But oh, to eliminate the others, to execute the others, don't they serve some purpose? Wouldn't they be no, the ones they, they rely they on? They serve purpose only at the stage of destabilization of a nation. For example, your leftists in the United States, all these professors and all these beautiful civil rights defenders, they are instrumental in the process of the, of the uh, uh, subversion only to destabilize a nation. When their job is completed, they are, non, they are not needed anymore. They know too much. Some of them, when, when they get disillusioned, when they see that Marxist-Lenin has come to power, the, obviously they get offended. They think that they will come to power. That will never happen, of course. They will be lined up against the wall and shot. But they may turn into the most bitter enemies of Marxist-Leninists when they come to power. And that's what happened in Nicaragua. You remember most of these uh, former Marxist-Leninists were either put to prison or one of them split and now he's working against Sandinistas. It happened in, in uh, uh, Grenada when Maurice Bishop was, he was already a Marxist. He was executed by, by a new Marxist who was more Marxist than this Marxist. Same happened in Afghanistan when uh, first there was Taraki, he was killed by Amin, then Amin was killed by Babrak Karman with the help of KGB. Same happened in, in Bangladesh when Mujibur Rahman, very pro-Soviet leftist, was assassinated by his own Marxist-Leninist military comrades. It's the same pattern everywhere. The moment they serve their purpose, all the useful idiots are used, either be executed entirely, all the idealistically-minded Marxists, or uh, uh, exiled or put in prisons, like in Cuba. Many, many former Marxists are in Cuba, I mean, in prison. He elaborates a little more here, specifically on, this was actually kind of the catalyst that led to him wanting to be a defector, was what happens to the most extreme Marxists that have been duped to go along with this here. To my horror, I discovered that in the files where people were doomed 
to execution. There were names of, of pro-Soviet journalists with whom I was personally friendly. Pro-Soviet? Yes. They were idealistically minded leftists who uh, made several visits to USSR. And yet, the KGB decided that come revolution or drastic changes in political structure of India, they will have to go. Why is that? Because they, they know too much. Mm -hmm. Simply because, you see, the useful idiots, the, the leftists who are idealistically believing in the beauty of Soviet socialist or communist or whatever system, when they get disillusioned, they become the worst enemies. That's why my KGB instructors specifically made the point, never bother with leftists. Forget about these political prostitutes. Aim higher. So to sum up what he's saying in regards to the fate of the people who went along with this, if for some reason you succeeded and inadvertently put communists who are authoritarian types into power, you know, like China or the former Soviet Union, you're going to end up dead. As he pointed out, once you realize the truth that is authoritarian communism, you're not going to be happy about it. And since you've been conditioned to believe that rioting and burning shit down is the way to achieve political change, you're going to try that again, and then you're going to end up like these people. That's, that's the future that you're fighting for at that point. They're not going to have any use for you. Thanks for listening.